welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio, the podcast where marketing leaders inside and outside the sciences share their creative ideas and practical approaches to increasing your marketing ROI. Here's your host, Chris Connor. Ken Schmidt is the founder and CEO of Turning Point Executive Search and author of The Practical Optimist, an entrepreneurial journey through life's turning points and host of the Practical Optimist podcast. He supports professionals in channeling both the logical and the visionary pieces of successful leadership. We're going to talk about that a little bit today. He's also the founder of the Sales and Marketing Leadership Alliance, where he spent 11 years interviewing CEOs, business leaders, and entrepreneurs on a monthly basis about the best way to make an impact in the business world. Ken, welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio. Thanks so much. I'm excited to be here and have a great conversation about what's, what's happening in the marketplace out there when it comes to employers. Yeah, so we're going to talk about hiring today, how it's been done traditionally, and what might be different now that you should probably be thinking about. So first, let me ask you, how did you get into executive search? Is this something you've always done? That's a, I'm laughing because the, the, the quick answer is that I actually answered an ad in the paper, you know, 26 years ago when there actually were ads in the paper, <laughs> right? Um, which is kind of funny being an executive search, and I actually got my job through just a newspaper ad. Um, but yes, yeah, so I've been doing it for quite a while. I, I came out of college in 92. I'm, I'm based here in San Diego, and I started working for Enterprise Rent-A-Car, and you know, loved the, the management you know, training program. I had grown up in a household that was very entrepreneurial. My dad was a jack-in-the-box franchisee, and my mom was in real estate. So I've been working since age 15, and I always knew that I, I loved being out in front of people. So I did Enterprise Rent-A-Car for about five and a half years, and then my first son was born, and you know, working seven days a week, and being on the pager way back when, when we all had pagers on our, on our, you know, our, our um, belt buckles, um, wasn't so fun anymore. And so I decided, you know, it's time to make a change, time to mix things up. And I answered an ad in the paper for a, a staffing agency back then was called Accountants Inc. And just fell in love with the industry and the work and the connections and the, the being a sponge and just learning so much from people out there that I get to interview and talk to for jobs. And here we are now, 26 years later, I started my company, Turning Point Executive Search, back in 2007. So I've been on my own for 16 years, but in the industry for 26. Wow. Nice. Yeah, newspaper ads. <laughs> yeah, something to think about back then. Right? Newspapers, even. Like. Yeah, the papers in, in general. Yeah, never mind ads right. in them. <laughs> exactly. Things have changed a lot over that time frame, that's for sure. Yeah, so let's um, let's talk about that change and um, talk about the skills that drive hiring decisions now. I mean, apparently you have a view that might be different than what it used to be or just remind us. Sure. Yeah. No, I, I, that's a good question. And, and you know, our, our practice, so we don't, we don't try to be all things to all people. Where we really specialize is in marketing and sales positions. That's about 50 to 60% of our recruiting is sales and marketing positions. And the rest is a combination of C-suite leadership and operations as well. But I've always been a really big believer in bringing marketing and salespeople together. Right. A lot of the big companies, the big, you know, legacy brands, the J&Js, the IBMs, all those companies out there, you know, it was always a, a very, you know, kind of siloed kind of an environment where sales was over here. Marketing was you know, somewhere different. Right. And sales and marketing always kind of threw daggers back and forth between each other. Sales always said, oh, marketing people, you give us crap leads and what are you doing? Marketing says we're giving you great leads, but nobody ever follows up on them. Right. 
And so there was this you know, us versus them mentality. So that's one of the biggest things that's changed over the many years I've been recruiting to your question is that you know people in marketing and in sales, but marketing especially, need to have that experience and, and understand the language of sales as well to be truly effective on the marketing side. And be able to understand the broader business, not just marketing you know, is the center of the universe, but marketing is, is much less of a linear role, if you will, or, or you know, a stop along the way. And it's much more circular. You know, it used to be that you know, marketing did this, this, and this, and then stopped, handed it off to sales, and now sales took it from there. But now it's, again, much more circular kind of a, a collaboration and relationship. And so whenever we're talking to candidates about the senior level marketing searches that we're doing, we're asking them, tell us about your experience collaborating with sales. What are your thoughts about sales? How do you work with sales, right? How do you integrate the sales process into your marketing pipeline and, and what you're doing on the, on the marketing campaign side? And what is that feedback loop? Right? Is there is there constant communication between sales and marketing and product development and IT and operations? Uh, and if not, that person is more of a siloed you know mentality. They're not the right fit. Yeah. So I have a question about that. I always think you know I didn't have any sales experience. I wish I did before I got <laughs> into marketing. I was a scientist, like many many people in this industry. They start as a scientist, they go into marketing. Right. If the right path, I believe, would be field application specialist, sales, marketing. But what, that always seems like an awkward path to me. Like why would someone who's in sales and presumably has a higher income potential, I would think, maybe I'm assuming wrong. No, sure, sure, yeah. Move to marketing other than they say, I'm just tired of being on the red. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Or is that how it happens? Yeah, I mean, we, we always joke that, you know, nobody goes to college to quote, get into sales. Right. I mean, the number of sales related degrees is very, very tiny. So, you know, most people fall into sales or get into sales, you know, not even by design. They kind of just somehow move or migrate into that. Right. Either they're more on the technical sides, so whether it's a science role or, or elsewhere. Um, and they realize, you know what, I'm, I'm better. My, my superpower is more being in front of people, you know, educating, telling a story, persuading those kinds of things. And I can't really do that if I'm on the bench or if I'm, you know, sitting in an office behind a computer in a lab. Uh, so people do tend to migrate into sales eventually. But I think, I mean, but to your question, you know, from the compensation perspective, it's a different mentality. I mean, you, and, but you also have different types of sales roles as well. For example, we do a lot of roles that are, you know, hunter positions, right? Where the role is to go out there and find new logos, you know, new clients for that organization, for the employer. That kind of person tends to have a little bit of a lower base salary, but a much higher upside commission potential, right? Whereas the, another part of sales is more account management, where your job is to talk to and engage with, right, the, 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 the company, the employer's existing customer base, and hopefully have some further penetration in that organization to bring in more business. Those account leaders, account directors, they tend to have a higher base salary, but a much lower upside commission. So okay. even within the sales world, you know, if you will, there's different, you know, compensation levels. But, you know, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a, it might sound kind of Pollyanna-ish, but we always tell people from a very early age, you know, don't chase a paycheck. Don't select your job. Don't select your career solely based on the money that you think you want to make. If you are doing what you love, whether it be marketing or sales or some, you know, combination hybrid therein, you know, if you're doing what you love, you have passion for it, you're good at it, you've got good mentors around you, then the money will follow. The money will come, right? 
Um, and I, like I said, I've been doing this for a long time. I'm in my early 50s now. I remember when I first started and I was, I was you know, placing people in jobs that were at the age I'm at now, thinking, who am I, this 25-year-old kid to tell <laughs> people <laughs> that are you know, VPs and, and CEOs what they should be doing? But even back then, it was a matter of, you know, what is your passion? What do you like doing? And there are people who will kind of talk at the end of their career and realize, or, you know, in a, in a job transition time frame, and you'll ask them, well, what do you want to do? And surprisingly, they'll say, I, I'm not sure. I never really thought about what I want to do. I just kind of fell into this, and I just, my career kind of just, you know, kind of took on a life of itself. Here I am now in my 50s, right? And I don't know what I want to do going forward. So really, you know, realizing that, that you, have, you have much more agency over your career than you might think. So focus on what you like doing, whether it's marketing or sales or more technical, and don't just focus on the paycheck. Yeah. I'm just thinking about those 50-year-olds who maybe never thought about what they wanted to do and now mm -hmm. are in a place where they go, oh, you know, I can, you know, I have a choice. And... Um, you know, I'm in a position where I have some flexibility or whatever. And I'm like, what could I do now that, and certainly, you know, maybe the 65 or 67 year olds who get to the end of the road and go, nobody told me I could have done that. Or they're telling their kids, let me tell you what I, you know, <laughs> if I could go and, back and do it again, here's what I would right. do. Differently. Yeah. 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 Yeah, we have a thing. We have this uh, segment on, on my podcast. We have a segment we call do overs and do agains, right? To that point. What are the things that you'd like to go back and do over again? Either something that maybe you didn't show up the right way for, for a, an employee of yours or in a certain situation. What are the things that you would do over? And then what are the things that you do again? Right? I use that phrase, your superpower. What are the things that you realize over the years that you're good at that you would do those things again? And it's become part of kind of the fabric of how you manage and how you lead. And those are the do agains. I like that. I like that a lot. You got. I'm, I'm going back through my whole career right now in my head. <laughs> well, we don't have time for that. Yeah. Um, let's talk about misconceptions about hiring criteria. I'll just throw this out. I don't know if this is entirely relevant to this question, but I see so many job descriptions. One, they're a little overwhelming, often written um, to defend against the candidate that just or the person that just left. Like. Don't do that anymore. We don't want someone, right? <laughs> but that, that's job descriptions, which you know is a bugaboo of mine. But talk about hiring criteria and what they really should be to get the right people. Yeah, it's a, when we could have probably a podcast just about job descriptions. I mean, they are, and again, that's the it's the one thing that's it's. I mean, to your point, and I, I share your frustration because every time most times that we are doing a search for a client, and it's a VP, director, C-suite type position, right? And we'll ask them if they have a job description, and invariably, they will pull a job spec off of the shelf that they probably created 10, 15 years ago. They dust it off. They might update it a little bit here and there, and they send it to us. And I think, okay, have you really sat down to think about what you need today, right? Not what you needed when you first wrote this 15 years ago. You're not just trying to you know, plug a hole. But what does the business need? A great example is, you know, industry experience. You know, the de facto kind of default job description says must have industry experience. And one of the things, yeah, and it's, and it's, it's in some cases it makes sense, certainly, if you're in a very specific technical kind of role. But for many situations, it doesn't make sense at all. So we will spend a lot of time with our clients saying, okay, let's, let's talk about the makeup of the department. Do you already have people in that group, whether it's marketing, sales, or whatever, that are from the industry? And the answer is almost always yes. 
Okay, great. So is th- this role based on the job description is supposed to be innovative and creative, right? You know, there's a concern about groupthink. And if you continually bring somebody in from the same industry again and again and again, everybody's cut from that same cloth, are you really truly being as innovative and creative and disruptive as you could be if you brought somebody in from a different area? And many times they will take a step back and pause and think, oh, I guess that makes sense, Ken, you know? And so it's a way to kind of open their eyes. Um, and I'm not saying, you know, you, you're going from you know, 25 years in banking to now all of a sudden becoming a marketing person in a life science company. That's, that's a bit of a difficult transition. But there are ancillary and, and tertiary industries you, you can pull somebody from where there's enough similarity there that it makes a lot of sense. So that's the one thing. Secondly is, you know, with degrees, right, college degrees. And there's been much more discussion and realization about this since COVID hit. Because, you know, the value of a college degree, the pricing, the inflation, you know, it's gone through the roof. Uh, I got a four-year degree from, from you know, here in San Diego at USD in economics. Do I actually use what I, what I learned? I, lose, I use the, the, the business component, right? My ability to think and to reason, those kind of things were fantastic. But you know, in the jobs that I would, would want if I wasn't running my own company, would I need a degree? Probably not. There's a lot of great sales and marketing folks out there that don't have degrees. And so, you know, focusing our clients on less on the degree as a check as a check mark and more on the experience, the mindset, the collaboration, the do you understand the culture and do you, do you work with other companies that have a similar employment brand as ours? Um, those are the things that are much, much more important than do you have a four year degree? You know, check that box. Yeah. So for going back, we'll get to the college part in a second, but going back to the industry experience part, I mean, I think I've, this has come up on my podcast a few times. I had a boss who insisted that all my marketing specialists had industry experience, even though the best current person on the team did not. And, you know, so I had to sort of discard some candidates. Uh, and then, right, right. Yeah. And the whole group think like everybody thinks yeah. that you need to know science to market science, but yeah, there's rarely a deficit of science knowledge on the team. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we need our creative marketers. You know, life science has caught up a lot in the last ten years since I've been doing this, but still, right, um, creativity exactly. and marketing, and then the whole and, and college. Think, yeah, go yeah. ahead. No, so you're right, and I think you know there are you know again as I mentioned you know banking to all of a sudden life science that could be difficult, but you know, going from, from, for example, a one service-based business over to another service-based business, right? There's a lot of similarities there, and there's a lot that you can, you can you know, bring from one to the other and have it make a lot of sense while still being creative and bringing new ideas and new approaches to the, to the table. And there's a huge value in that. There really is. Yeah. I think about the college thing a lot. My daughter just started last week. Um, Congratulations. And- Thank you. And, I, you know, I compare her bills to my bills when I was in school many years ago in the last century. But I also think, you know, sometimes it's easy when you've been out of college for a long time to forget, you know, because you don't use most of what you learned a long time ago. You've accumulated a lot since then. But maybe right out of the gate, we're underestimating. I'm just trying to play the other side because often I think well, sure. yeah do you really need like do I use the anthropology classes I took no but they were interesting <laughs> and they were relevant to my bio degree and you know um, some literature classes mm-hmm. 
but writing's a skill. So you can think about those things. Um, it's worth thinking about, but certainly I do appreciate that employers should recognize that it isn't always an absolute requirement and right, might be right. passing up good candidates. Um, well, I mean, in sales and marketing, especially right now, if you're, if you're becoming a CPA or an attorney, obviously that's a whole different story. Right. But if you're in other roles that are not quite, not, not kind of that certification, you know, um, related type roles like those, you know, what, what's better to go to go, come out of high school, go to college for four years, do that, maybe do an internship. Or if you were interning during high school or you're part of your family business, like a lot of folks I work with are, are part of the family business, right? And then you ended up getting a job, a full-time job in the industry right out of high school. So you've, you, you decided to not go to college, but now you have four more years of experience, you know, hands-on, real-world experience that's, that's really, you know, relevant is which one is better? It's it's not a it's not a definitive right or wrong either way. But you know, there's a lot of value in those four years, additional four years of working in the industry versus being at school. Now, I, my my son is a, just started his senior year at, at college, and he's studying to be a, a sound engineer and an audio production you know leader. Wants to run a, a sound studio uh, at some point is his goal. Um, but but you know, we've always my wife and I've always talked about the fact that you know it's important to do things other than just academics while you're in college. So he, so he works, he does other production. He's actually our podcast production manager. I've introduced him to several of my clients and he's done podcast work for them also in audio work. Um, he's in a band, so he's got experience, you know, the business side of, of being in a band. Uh, so those are all the things combined with the actual classroom work that is going to make him a more well-rounded individual uh, outside of just someone who only studies and does nothing else. Right. Hopefully, also, hopefully, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'll tell you a year from now if it worked or not. <laughs> right. I think there's also something to be said for, you know, kids who come out of high school and are motivated enough to start working right now. Right. And um, four years down the road, they've developed some leadership and possibly some management skills that um, a senior yeah. coming out of college may not have. Right. Regardless yeah, and communicating of- with your friends over DMs or over whatever you're using, right? Um, in, in college is different, as we both know, right? Than communicating with a peer or a boss in a corporate environment, and that's really important to learn. And I wish there were. I wish every college, public, private, whatever, community college. I wish it was required that everybody went through some kind of a communication etiquette class, especially these days, right? where everything is just so quick and short, you know, thanks to Twitter, now X, you know, there's just th- that whole mindset has been created that way. But but to your point, communication is just so important. Yeah, that's a, that's a definite, it's a good transition to our next question about skills. And yeah, something I told my daughter when she was thinking about, she hasn't decided on major, but I told her when she goes to college, focus on skills, not topics, you know. You right. Can, Great. Um, great You're going to learn a lot, but, you know, if you develop skills like writing, communication, interacting with other people, soft skills that we're going to talk about right now, um, (laughs) you'll go a lot farther. So how do you account for those soft skills in the hiring process? How do you figure out if people actually have them? Yeah, I mean, we always we always joke in this industry that it's much more of an art than a science, right? And and, and a lot of that can be can be um, vetted through a, a proper and efficient interviewing process, right? You've got you know you saw a lot of the old school companies that will their interview will be so tell me about yourself, 
which is a completely worthless question. It doesn't tell you anything about anything that's relevant to the job that you're trying to hire them for, right? It can go off in many different ways. But instead, if you said, you know, coming out of school, you know, let's say it's a, it's a new hire entry-level position, right? And you ask that applicant, so tell me about some projects that you worked on that you led during your four years in school that were outside of your class. Tell me about that. Now you're starting to peel back those layers and figure out how do they think? How did they lead? You're going to ask them, did they have friends on that team? And how did that go managing your friends and holding your friends accountable, right? Uh, whose idea was it to take on this project or for this thesis, whatever it may have been? So there are, those kind of questions can be asked whether you're coming right out of school or whether you have 20 years of experience. But if you're hiring a, a marketing VP, the question shouldn't be, so tell me about your last role. The question should be, so tell me about the, about the last three campaigns that you oversaw. Whose idea was it? Where, where did the ideation come from? How long did it take to get it off the ground? Who was involved? Who was on the team? You know, which platforms did you use? How many A-B tests did you do before you decided on one? There's a lot of very much more specific questions that you can ask that'll be relevant to that job as opposed to just, hey, tell me about yourself. And in that process, you're learning about their soft skills to your question, right? You're learning about how do they communicate. You know, if, if <laughs> when they're talking about the last few campaigns, if they talk about the failures and they talk about other people, you know, they, right? Uh, and every time there's a success, it's always I. I did this, I did that, but they ruined this or they messed up that. And again, you know, take note of that. That's how this person <laughs> thinks, right? They're not as, as empowering of a manager as they might think they are if it's an I versus they kind of a conversation. So those are the things you can ask about in the interview process, certainly, that'll peel back those soft skills. And then back to, you know, tell me about what your, your last organization or last two organizations were like. How did people communicate out there? Was it, you know, virtual? Was it in office? That's a, a, obviously a big topic right now. Was it hybrid? How did you build camaraderie, cohesiveness, collaboration, and trust, you know, among your team if they were spread out across the U.S. or if they were spread out across the world? How did you bring that group together to get on the same page? Those, again, are the softer skills that are not a, a technical you know, know-how, but it's really a leadership management type of a skill that you only can develop over time. Right. I think, yeah, that's an interesting one. And um, it's good for storytelling and it's a good skill to have, you know, if you have a distributed team, which I'm imagining most people have somewhat of at least of a distributed team these days. There's somebody who's not yeah. around all the time. Very true. And how do you keep people tuned in? I mean, my first remote job, most of my team was way far away and never met each other. I never met some of my employees for like a year and a half oh, face wow. to face. Yeah. Um, this was before Zoom. So mm -hmm. like to do a video call was a big deal for a bunch of people to go into one room at a location <laughs> and get on a camera to talk to a bunch of people in another room. Um, yeah. With the technology always buffering and delays and the audio wasn't always caught up to the video. I, I remember those days too. Yep. Yeah, and it was a challenge. Now, you know, it's nothing to to have a Zoom call and have the whole team there, which I think would be good. And but we managed. You know, it is doable yeah. even without it. Um, sure. And we had a a way of working together. Yeah. Um, all right. Yeah, now let's go. Go ahead. I was going to say just as a quick story. So we just completed a search for a VP of Growth Marketing. You know, for a mid-sized software software SaaS company. Um, technically based in San Diego here, but distributed and, and fully remote everywhere. 
And so part of that responsibility for this VP level role, to our point before, was the softer skills. How do you manage your team effectively? In this case, they had a team of about 23 people, about half of which were overseas in Asia, right? And some and the rest were here in the U.S. spread across a, a, about, about 15 different states. So to your point, a soft skill is really important in that situation for that VP of growth marketing position to make sure that you can manage a team that is literally global, different time zones, different communication styles, right? Different etiquette in terms of how you communicate. And so that's, that was a big part of our screening process, you know, for our, for our, our candidates to make sure they had that knowledge base and that experience. Yeah, that's a good one. I mean, yeah, bringing together not just remote people, but different cultures right. and communication styles. All right, my favorite uh, topic here in this in this world, let's talk about employer branding. Um, you know, we talked about those job descriptions, which to me is kind of the, <laughs> the very front face of an employer brand. But talk about it in the big picture, why it's important for hiring, retention, and so on. Sure, sure, yeah. And it's, it's one of those things I always, I mean, after all the years I've been doing this, I'm still amazed by how many companies don't think enough about that or don't realize that, hey, you have a brand, obviously, than product or service that you sell, but you also have a brand that's your employer brand. And if I bring up that, that topic, sometimes they'll say, well, you know, what do you mean by that? And I'll say, well, you have, whether you like it or not, and whether you know it or not, you have a brand and a reputation as a place to work. Right, you can look on the vault or Glassdoor for reviews. Granted, Glassdoor tends to be a little more negatively skewed, so take it with a grain of salt. But regardless, there's some good, you know, tidbits and nuggets of of insight there. Um, so, like it or not, you as an organization have a brand, and there's not a there's not a right or a wrong brand, but you have to own that brand. I use the example all the time. If, you, if you're a pre-IPO company or you're you know, hard charging down that, that path of getting acquired in the next 12 to 18 months, you're, you're not working 40 hours a week. You're working a lot, especially in a leadership position, right? You're probably more like 60 hours a week. So in that situation, you have to you know, own that employment brand and don't hire somebody who has a newborn at home. Don't hire somebody who you know, is, is taking care of elderly parents and needs that flexibility, right? Again, it's not a right or a wrong thing. It's just alignment. If that alignment is not there because they don't own or acknowledge their employment brand, you're going to have miserable hires that are not going to last very long. And the person that hired them is going to be very unhappy because now they have to replace that person and rehire all over again. So you really need to understand who you are as an employer. You know, for example, my company is, is small. We're seven people. So I, don't have a, I can't offer a lot of upward mobility. That's not part of my employment brand. But instead of that, what I do offer is a flexibility, right? We've been a 100% remote company since day one for 16 years. That flexibility is fantastic. And I'm a night person, so I do a lot of my creative working from nine till midnight every single night. You know, don't call me at five in the morning. I'm, I'm miserable at that point. I would not be a very good, very good person to talk to at that point in the morning. But I have employees that are much better in the morning than at night. And I give them flexibility. I say, you know, I don't care when you get the work done. I'm not focusing on activities. I'm focusing on results. And that's a big part of our employment brand is flexibility. And then secondly, beyond that, you know, I, I also, because we're a small company, I, I kind of peel back the layers and I run a very transparent business. So as a small, small company with a small employer brand, I can allow my seven people to see what it takes to run a business. Here are the financials. Here's the good and bad. Here's what we're going to spend on this marketing campaign or this new initiative, whatever it might be. Um, here's, how, here's why we have to cut back on bonuses because it's been a tough quarter. So those are things they wouldn't get exposure to in a large company. 
And so that's also part of my employment brand. So again, regardless of what size company you are or what industry you happen to be in, you know, just be aware of that, own that, and then you know, find, find the, the ways, the opportunities to leverage it and really use it to attract top talent. You know, set up videos, create videos to put on your career page on your website, talk about it on LinkedIn, right? You know, make sure that the employees that are happy are also making comments on Glassdoor, not just the ones that are disgruntled or unhappy or, or, or left your company a year ago. You know, find ways to really leverage and market that employment brand, just as you would market the actual product or service that you sell. It's the same thing. Yeah. I had an idea. I mean, uh, I just think that going back to the job descriptions, like that is the front door of your employer brand to a large degree. And I think as you point out, many companies don't know they even have one and don't think about it enough. Um, In terms of just ideas for employer branding videos, absolutely. What's your CEO like? What are the normal employees like? Why Not just why do they like their work, but what do they find interesting about what they're doing just in general? Or what makes them interesting as people that you might want to work alongside? And then uh, one of the ideas I had was to do interviews like this, but create a Spotify playlist for your company. And just people could just on their That's a great well, idea. I love that commuting idea. Commuting to their current job, thinking about the next job, listening <laughs> to stories from people that work at your company. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, that's the way to get the word out there. And and I think, you know, a lot of times companies don't realize the value of the content that they already had already have within their company, which is what you just said, their employees, the people that are happy. And especially if you're trying to hire more of a Gen Z or young millennial workforce, you know, it's less about responsibilities and more about impact. They want to know what and how they're going to impact the company, right? So if you have people talking about not, not here's why I like my job, but instead, here's what I'm doing. Here's what I get to do, the things I'm exposed to, this great project, this great team, whatever it is. Those are the kinds of videos. And they don't have to be professional. You can do it you know, over just your, your basic you know, Mac computer. Um, and, and really, if it's more of an organic feel and, and it's less polished, that's actually better. That resonates yes. better, especially with Gen Zs. Yeah, I think overproduced videos of people saying how much they love your company, you know, if you put that much effort into it, they're they're feeling a little bit of pressure. But if it, yeah, if you're just having a conversation with somebody and you say, This is me at work, here's what I love doing, um, it will come across much, much I better. I think um there's a big opportunity there. And if you do have a film crew making videos for other reasons, if you have a good one, I've I've worked with some they will try to capture that stuff as a bonus for you, right? Yeah. Well, I think a lot of companies feel like either if I'm going to do anything at all, I have to have it be, you know, with a professional film crew. And so they do nothing, right? Not realizing that you can start, like I said, I mean, you can do something just like over Zoom, record yourself, have, have, you know, have your HR leader interview you as the CEO or you as the CMO, right? It can be really organic and very simple. Don't, Don't overthink it. Right. You got to start somewhere with that employment branding. That's a good place to start. Yeah. I mean, all the content we consume now, much of it is recorded, if not like this, by somebody's phone. And that's just the standard now. And the more organic, the better. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and it, it speaks to authenticity and, and coming across as being genuine. Right. We all, everybody jokes about the, the, the TikTok videos of people that supposedly just woke up and yet their hair is perfect. 
right? Hair is perfect. They're in a great outfit, right? Their makeup is done. You're like, come on now. We're, you know, how, how dumb right. do you think we are, right? Um, so that person is not coming across as being genuine or authentic. Same thing with yeah. your corporate videos. You don't need to have a perfect, you know, makeup <laughs> setup, hairdo, you know, shirt, tie, whatever it is. Just, you know, speak from your gut, from your heart. Talk about why you like working there or if you're the founder, why you started the company and what your vision is for the company. Those are the things that will really engage your audience and your potential applicant pool when you're trying to fill positions. Yeah, awesome. Ken Schmidt, this has been a blast talking to you today. Uh, thank you very much for your time and your insights on hiring. Thank you, Chris. It's great being here. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Hey, if you're still listening, that tells me you enjoyed the podcast. But don't tell me. Tell your friends. And I'll be back soon with another episode. Okay, you can tell me too. Send an email, chris at lifesciencemarketingradio.com. Bye-bye.